I'm Tara Lake, and this is The Tara Lake Show. Thank you for joining me this week for the conclusion of this special series on poet, author, activist, and educator Francis E.W. Harper. Only a few days ago, on September 24th, we celebrated the 196th anniversary of Francis E.W. Harper's birth. Now, in this season of gratitude and remembrance for the work of this visionary leader and thinker, we close with a special interview with Dr. Utz McKnight, Associate Professor in Political Science and Chair of the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. Dr. McKnight's book, Francis E.W. Harper, A Call to Conscience, was published in December of 2020. Dr. McKnight discussed the enormity of Harper's legacy as a thriving activist, literary artist, author, orator, community leader, and educator. He highlighted the role of race and gender in her reception by the general public and by leaders in 19th century African-American protest movements. He also discussed Harper's most popular fictional work, and reveals more about what it offers for readers today. I hope you enjoy this in-depth discussion with professor and author, Dr. Utz McKnight, recorded in December, 2020. I have the great pleasure of being joined today in this special edition by Dr. Utz McKnight. Uh, Dr. McKnight is the chair of of the Department of Gender and Race Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Alabama. And his exciting new book is titled Francis E.W. Harper, A Call to Conscience. Uh, As you know, we've had a wonderful time in recent, recent months Uh, exploring and celebrating the work of Philadelphia's own Francis E. W. Harper, uh, who spent a wonderful life of activism, uh, not only here in Philadelphia, but significantly here in Philadelphia, along with uh, many other parts of the country. Uh, A trailblazer in so many ways. She was a writer, a poet, uh, an activist, an author, a speaker, a person who uh, utilized her many creative gifts as a writer and orator, an activist for the greater uplift of people of color and also women here in the United States toward a greater vision of equality uh, and a greater vision of a country that could live out its creed as a people, in her words, all bound up together. And so we are so excited uh, to have Dr. McKnight with us today. And so without further ado, Dr. McKnight, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I have so many questions for you. And uh, really just wanted to just open and, and, and start with your sharing a bit about what inspired uh, your work on this wonderfully exciting book, which, by the way, I should tell listeners that I, I was able to sneak a copy myself earlier today. Please tell us more about um, your inspiration for this work. Well, I think, I mean... I mean, you said it really nicely. I don't know a couple of minutes later if, if people are following your wonderful introduction to her life in Philadelphia and then elsewhere, her contributions as a poet, as a writer, as a, um, a giver of speeches at the major conferences, as an organizer, as an activist, also as a teacher. Um, you know, her work in nonprofit, what we call nonprofit organizational work in Philadelphia in particular, um, you know, a friend of, you know, all of those people who form what we think of as the, from 1850s to 1900, the sort of black abolitionist movement, and then the anti-lynching crusade. Um, You know, this was a key figure. I mean, in some ways, I guess I'll say like this, this was a key figure in a 50-year period that the the reason why I think she's important and, and why I was interested is because her, the neglect of her work, um, relative neglect, is for us an indication, one, of what she was writing about and her poetry and all that, like the subject matter of her work. Um, you know, in, in some sense, you could say that her, the vision she was trying to give us failed. 
Hmm. Like we chose a different path as a country. And so therefore bringing her back up to an, to an awareness is a kind of motivation for us to address, you know, after 50 more years after the integration of PWIs and, and, you know, public services in the country, um, it's a sort of the same type of challenge. Like her work becomes extremely yeah. important. It's the same type of message. She, she was, and this is, you know, you're asking the reason why I sort of wrote about her is that she speaks to us today more than anybody else, but also the fact that she was not brought up as a major figure in the same way that let's say Frederick Douglass was right. Um, you know, Harriet Tubman, so you're in a truth, Ida B. Wells, um, you know, and Ida B. Wells would stay at her house in Philadelphia, right? When she came through as a younger, as the next generation, because Francis oh. Farmer was the generation before her, right? Mm -hmm. like they were good friends. And this sort of relative neglect of her is indicative of a way that we've approached the sort of national historical politics of gender and race, right? Um, you know, so it's it's both for me and, you know, after writing the book and doing the research and, you know, looking at the research of many others before and Melba Boyd, you know, um, Samantha, Francis Smith Hart, Foster um, and, and others, you can see it's obvious. So it's more that we shouldn't have to ask the question. She should be like Frederick Douglass, where we kind of go like, well, of course, there's 50 books written, but there aren't 50 books. And part of it is when I first began, I thought it was, well, black women, she's being neglected. But wait, it's not just, it's not just that. It's that she was literary. She was a poet. Instead, so you're not without taking anything from them. So you're in a truth, was illiterate. What you do now, if you think about it, who would you choose? You choose, of course, a powerful force. So you're in a truth, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. You take Frederick Douglass, both, you know, former slaves, as opposed to the free, you know, sort of not self-taught at that time, because how did people come to their awareness of literary work? This is somebody who was a poet, even as in her late teens. Like, and she writes four novels, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, she's a leading national activist. Mm -hmm. You know, let me be a little bit coy. I mean, not coy, but like cynical about this a little bit. So who would you want to erase? If you had to say that black people are inferior, if you had to justify Jim Crow, hmm. if you had to say, you would, you would have to erase somebody like her. You would have to. And you can see the, you could, you could see, you know, you go through the literature, you go through the response from her speeches and all of this and the type of activism she did. And you can see how, the first thing that would have to happen in the 1880s and 1890s is that you would have to, as she gets older, right? This is, she was born in what, 1825? You know, so at this point, 65, 75, still alive, right? What would you do with a 65, 75-year-old strong black woman with a real force of intellect? Because mm -hmm. you would begin to push her aside, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to say that black people don't have somebody like her. And, and so it's, Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, Dr. McKnight, I want to make sure that, that you um, discuss, because you have a really important and, and critical uh, concept about what you think is at the bottom of that erasure. And you talk about her status as a free woman, as opposed yeah. to some of her contemporaries. And I wonder if you could weave that into to this so, one discussion. So I, I, think, I think it was like two choices that we had as a country. I'm going to be really general about it. One was to discuss the the sort of freeing of the slaves mm -hmm. as a you know as a way to describe how black people should be in the society afterwards mm -hmm. um and then the other way was to talk about well some blacks were enslaved the majority of blacks were enslaved but many blacks were also free and so they had a print culture they had a viable you know sort of salon culture right they had arts, they, they had a threat, like, so, you know, if you think about it this way, what better way to talk about, you know, racial inequality, if you believe that blacks are, you know, unequal, what better way to talk about it than to always talk about it in terms of emancipation? Mm -hmm. We freed you, somebody says, mm -hmm. or you freed yourself. 
you you need and you think about Booker T. Washington's argument it, to reduce it, this idea of well, we're not yet ready for civilization. Mm. And so Francis Harbor goes, excuse me, <laughs> right? Like, well, what do you mean? Like the civilization that I mean, there's something else that you know. I'm the contemporary of all of you, you know, and think of it in a different way. Like I could be much reduced the whole thing, like the way the, your first question. Um, this is a person who wrote four books. She has countless volumes of poetry, right? Yes. Okay. Um, this is 1860, 70, 80, 90. Um, if somebody who was not of color had written four books, a woman, and had all the poetry, and had been an activist, um, an organizer, would we think of her as the foremost citizen of that last half century? We would. Um, and so her erasure is a problem for us, right? And it is not a problem, because we like to do this now, right? As, as a, the Black community likes to do this now, where we say, well, there's internal conflicts and choices and all of this. That's not actually what took place, hmm. right? Um, you know, in the response to, you have to, you know, and I don't know how you've been doing this these moments before, but, you know, if we think of the nadir of the Black experience in the United States, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, the incredible lynching, the EJI um, lynching memorial is just two, two hours drive from here, down in Alabama, right? Um, down in Montgomery. And, you know, the thousands of people who were lynched. This is that time period. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there is a narrative that has to take our, the response by the black community is, you know, we're in danger. We're under threat. They are, you know, you thought you had rights. You don't have rights, like all this type of thing. And so somebody, you know, Francis Harper as an academic or an, as an as a public intellectual. Right as a writer, as a poet, um, she has no place in that. She has no place in that narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, it is only when you, you know, that, that after the turn of the century and you get up, you know, a couple of decades into Harlem Renaissance and we bring the Harlem Renaissance up, right? But we bring it up because, oh, all of a sudden these people are writing. And so, and we forget, and what I worry about, and I know you do too, and, and your listeners do too, is I worry about how many other people have also been erased. Hmm. Yes. How many others? It was not just her. There were salons. I mean, she was speaking. Not only did she, of course, speak alongside Sojourner Truth, you know, at the sort of abolitionist rallies, right? But after the Civil War, remember, there's a vibrant, and Black people are freed, right? Those in the South and, and in the North who still were enslaved. Um, you know, this type of, or in that type of, status or contract um you know where are those where are those people around her where are the other intellects so i think i i think you and i are faced with an incredible opportunity the next 20 30 years there's going to be so much archival work uncovered yeah. there's and we're going to realize and this is the thing for us you know and your listeners we're going to change how we look at the u.s because we're going to change how we look at black life and we're going to realize that if in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, Elias Stewart, et cetera, right? If we had black men and women who were writing and publishing and doing creative arts, right, and poets, if we had that, you know, then we have to rethink how we think of ourselves in terms of progress, hmm. right? We have to, we also have to, we're going to get new contributions to how we think of the world and our lives. Like we're literally going to find, like recovering because of course, Francis E.W. Harper, the work of Boyd and, and, and Foster and many others, uh, black women, um, the majority of them has been to uncover the actual work. Because it's been a lot of library archival work to be able to uncover like the four novels. Yes. You see like all that type of work, that, that's what's gonna happen in the next 20 years. And I'll say like this, um, and I think, I think it's very important. We, we wonder, you and I and others, you know, 50 years, 50 some years after integration, right? You know, or the civil rights movements um, that, you know, the, the accomplishments of the civil rights movements, 
we're still wondering what is the African American supposed to benefit from being in the academy? Mm. We're still wondering about that. The verdict is still out. We're still fighting. We, you know, is the is the price of the ticket, as Baldwin says, is the price of the ticket, um, you know, the bifurcation of the black community into a group of excellent, you know, accomplished individuals, and then poverty and misery and mm. all of the other stuff, which is very similar to Jim Crow. Yes. Right. So I think that one of the things that supports our verdict, the work that you and I do and others, is the fact that we can do this archival work. It gives us a chance to not only justify or to reframe why we're doing the work we're doing, reframe as instead of just individual success, mm. community success. Because one of the things about Francis Harper that I, you know, that I will stand for, everybody has a different vision of this person, a different way of talking about this person's work because this is an incredible individual, right? For me, it's that she was a visionary for our community and the community as a, an integral part of the American democratic project. Like there's no question that in her last, in Iola Leroy, in Trial and Triumph, the book just before that, yeah. is that she is acknowledging the collapse of possibility of a democratic project, which is what we think of today as America, right? Um, and so now, what is it? Here we are, 2020. Um, how, how well are we doing in this project? Yeah. And, you know, for Francis Harper and, and for us, and, I, you know, I'm a professor, so I'll go on forever, so I'll stop in a second, right? For us, we know that it, it is really our responsibility. Mm, yes. Like, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Indeed. You know, Dr. McKnight, I wonder if you could speak to, you. Um, in, in our discussion so far, you've reminded us of the importance of, of Harper's presence in, um, in Black academic circles and Black literary circles in the Black press, um, which was prominent and, and um, which I think as, as Americans generally is not, not something that we talk about at all. Um, and you have situated her along with David Walker and David Walker's Appeal and people like Mariah Stewart. And you also do something interesting in your book um, where you compare the, the success that she's able to have. So she also has a marketability um, and she has a, a level of success that um, other authors who we, know, who we know much better. So you give us the, the example of Walt Whitman and um, you say Blades of Grass, <laughs> how many, 100 copies or something along those lines. Uh, and <laughs> And here Harper is going into five printings um, and, and, and 10,000 volumes sold. Um, and, and you talk about the fact, you make the statement in the book that you believe that this is the generation that intellectually, socially, academically, that this is the generation that is prepared to consider and, uh, and to at least move toward an acknowledgement of Harper as perhaps the most important literary voice of the second half of the 19th century. And I wonder if you could um, tell us a bit about why, uh, what is it about this generation? What is it about, uh, you and I spoke briefly before, and you talked about the recovery of the work of Harper that has been done heroically um, in large part by African-American women in the academy. So what's, uh, you, you've just kind of brought us to the moment where you say things are changing, we have a possibility. What's happening and, and why do you think that rescue moment is possible now? So on the one hand, you can see the tension in the last few decades, hmm. right? Between um, a sort of like how to accommodate, like, or a canon argument. What's the canon, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And what, what are we supposed to be both teaching the next generation, how are we both supposed to think of our society? But that tension, you could see Harper as trying to resolve some of that by, by offering up, um, you know, by the standards of a sort of scholar activist, the poet, like how you're supposed to contribute to society. You could see Harper as, um, you know, representing, and actually it's a very nice way to put it, the way you just asked me that question. And that is that it is only now when we begin to look for people speaking from a particular perspective, right? We are, we listen, we listen to music differently. 
Mm. Right. We pay attention to poetry differently and literature from, and that's what I meant by the sort of canon argument. We're beginning to figure out, as as Bell Hooks says very early, right, in Bell Hooks' career, from margin to center. Mm, yes. We're beginning to challenge what what we mean by center. And if it is, it is not just a collection of disparate communities, but what we do together. And so what we've done, and I'll, I'll be more succinct, I think what we're doing together is different hmm. than it was in the 1950s and 1960s. I think what we're doing now together, even though it is full of conflict and contradiction, right, um, that that is, there's a part of that which is generative, which is something that we need to do that was not possible when here you have Harper speaking to mixed audiences, um, audience of just white, audiences of just white women, audience of just white men, mm. right? Um, speaking with actually great social hostility to her person because she's a woman and how dare she speak in public, right? Um, speaking alongside former, the formerly enslaved as a free woman, um, you know, going out, partially going out West also as part of a political movement, right? To argue for emancipation and, you know, about abolition, um, you know, and here she is. Let me, let's, let's hold this, her time and thought for a moment. You're talking about a population which is largely illiterate mm. with only one text probably in the household. And that's the Bible. Mm -hmm. And here she is, and she's putting together a, you know, and she has what we call now like a chapbook, right? You know, a collection of, let's say, 10 poems that she would then sell sometimes at the events, right? To earn a little bit of money. Um, but also then give away, right? So all of a sudden what she's doing is she's introducing something in addition to the Bible into many, many homes around the country, mm -hmm. right? And she is also, and this was one of the things that's very important about Francis Harper, is that somebody would read it and it was a public event. So her speaking was sort of emulating how you would absorb her poetry. It is not like we think now, especially right now, with COVID and everything is sitting in our houses and reading a book. Um, instead, it was, you know, read this short poem and talk about it amongst four or five people in a one-room house, right, of the formerly enslaved in, let's say, Alabama. Yes. Right. And so that, and the reason why I'm saying that is imagine how important it was. Imagine her role in, in offering up Yes, with religion, right? Um, but offering up a translating, in some sense, certain very important ideas about the American polity and the democracy, translating that right into people's living rooms. There's no TV, there's no phone, right? And people can't read. And so what she did was, I, I, I want to give her credit, and that's I'm speaking to this then, the Whitman issue, I want to give her all the credit for having figured out a way to reach tens of thousands of people, right? Um, not just a very rarefied elite, like we call Whitman, um, you know, even though, of course, Whitman is talking about the importance of this sort of democratic poet. Like, who's the democratic poet in the room? Francis Harper comes and says, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's mostly black people, so maybe you don't care. But the fact is, you know, and and she does go with, so you're in her truth and others, right? Mm -hmm. She does go south after emancipation and teaches. Like she has her bona fides in that way. She puts herself, she's on the lecture circuit, right, down south. And what do we mean by lecture circuit then for her as a poet? And I really think it's important for your because you've been working with Francis Har E. W. Harper now for a bit, yeah, is to understand yeah. that you know her poetry was what was passed out, and you know, and let me say like this: I know I know a lot of poets, right? Um, imagine having that type of audience where you're up there, people are illiterate. This is not the rarefied, you know. You're not at at Yale or Harvard talking, you know, like this and kind of like, well, you know, you read my fourth book of poetry, and of course I got these awards. Instead, Francis Harper's like. I know you don't read, and I know you just came from the most terrible situation. Mm -hmm. 
And I know, because she got this, I know you don't see me. You've never met a black person like me. I know this, right? And we know this from the way people have recorded, like oh, talked yeah. about this, that oh, people were yeah. like, what kind of black person is this? Oh, she must, right? oh, she, she must be a man. Must be a man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I want to say, and I want to say, I like, okay, so when I'm speaking about this, I need everybody to understand and never forget, because part of the reason this problem of erasure, everybody is erasing the fact this is a black woman. Like, as I'm speaking now, we're talking about a black woman. So a black woman is getting up there saying, look, this is the future. And I'm going to do it through poetry. In other words, you know, the spoken word, hip hop artist. Francis Harper is like, well, you know, blah, 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 like this. And I mean, they've never heard anything like this in their lives, right? You know, she's not she's not the pastor, right? You know, the sort of, you know, country pastor type. You know, this is a, and she is as, you know, acknowledged. She is, is also, she carries herself in a certain type of way. Yes. So she's she offers up not a respectability vision but instead a way to walk from where we are in our suffering and also our success to think of a way to do things together. And so some people don't like that. Like I understand some people read the poetry and they're like, ah, you know, it's just too crude or simple or it's, in other words, it's kind of too in your face. You know, it's kind of going like, Hey, you know, I saw my son die. My husband left me, but people are like, Oh, why are you talking? Like, Hmm. Nah, you know, let's let's talk about the trees and the forest. You know, like this. <laughs> but, she, but she's standing you know, as a poet, the importance of I think the utility in her work that she recognizes that it's why I think so many of her poems are picked up and become hymns uh, that yes. people sing, right? That people find ways that they can engage her work and carry her work with them. I think it's why she's able to recite her poetry, as you say, when she's giving her speeches, that she's able to find that her poetry has legs yes. in a way that, um, that, that other poets, um, I should say other poets may have had the luxury of not having to consider those things, but we That's see um, that, that Harper does. And as a result, her poetry had so much life, right? Um, yeah, and you think about it, and but you think about it. No, no. I mean, it's excellent. I mean, it obviously, you know, we're in the same community of scholarship with this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you just answered the question of why we can consider it now. Yes. Is that now we can see a connection between the music, and hymnal, hymnal process, um, lyrics, poetry. We can see it's sort of there's a there's a text, right? Um, and I would rather. I mean, even though you mentioned Whitman. I'm not sure how there is a place for contestation. Yes. Right. But, and so I'm not taking that away at all. Cause of course I write that in the book, right. You know, I write it to be provocative. So I'm, I need to provoke to get people to think about the, the narrative they do accept of sort of intellectual progress, the concepts we use and how we think of the poet. And then the counter, which is Francis Harper and many others, right. Um, so she is up there on the podium, your stage, with Sir Yorna Truth. Now, Sir Yorna Truth goes before her. She's older, see, you know, in every way, right? Um, a, a better known figure. Yes. Frances Harper is young. She's in her 20s. What does Sir Yorna Truth do? This is just to confirm how you're talking. So, now, so people think that Sir Yorna Truth is up there speaking about the horrors of slavery. So Yorna Truth sings. People don't understand. She's saying, mm -hmm. and so so you're no truth is speaking a little bit and singing, and then all of a sudden the poet. And so I think we need to. This is what I meant by re envisioning, thinking through how the society was in a different way. The audience was receptive to this. So I mean, I'm sorry, we're kind of late to this, right? Right. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Like yeah. we're late. Um, but I do think I do think it puts an obligation and responsibility on the creative artist to not say today, to not say like this. I've invented this, wow. and instead to go like, so what new things can I? Let me look at Francis E. W. Harper's work, 
like her all of her work or the work that resonates with you and figure out not neglect it but instead no i'm responsible like because i think responsibility to to black women in our lives to black men in our lives to ev to everyone in the community um you know and of course then the larger question of the society but everybody in the community is to respect and honor the work that's come before us and realize that it's okay if you kind of reproduce what somebody's done it's okay there's nothing wrong with that right but but you don't have to do that you don't have to pretend well it's not i don't want to be negative but you you should be able to acknowledging what has come before i think is the key to our future hmm. it, it really is yeah um, you know, I get I get Frederick Douglass, of course, in Du Bois. You know, I was trained up in that tradition, right? Delaney, the men, yes, right. But the fact is, Francis Harper. It's going to be hard for us now in our generation to ignore, and I hope this book contributes to that because I'm really talking about the not the politics of her work, but how it should speak to these issues, right? Yes. In the book, um, I hope we get to a stage where we feel we can't just ignore somebody with four books and, and all the poetry and the activism, just yeah. because what, she's a black woman? And we can't ignore, I think, a movement in that period toward a greater radicalism that signifies yeah. somebody like a Martin Delaney, and That's then right. not have that conversation, and, and, and then not bring Harper into that conversation. That's right. I'm here with Dr. Utz McKnight of the University of Alabama, uh, and he is discussing his wonderful new book called Francis P.W. Harper, A Call to Conscience. In addition to the artistry and the scholarship um, and the activism of Harper, there is an ongoing, there's an ongoing stream uh, of the, the very real issue of Harper's survival, her need to survive, and how those, how especially these economic concerns exist for Harper sort of throughout her life as an artist. Um, you speak about her having to leave um, her educational pursuits. Uh, under circumstances that are not necessarily, um, we don't know that much about that, given, of course, that she was educated in her uncle's school. And, and from moment to moment, you talk about the ways in which she is um, also finding ways to survive as an artist. And I wonder how much that has to do with the choices that she makes, even in how, and we're talking about this, I guess, a bit already, but like even in terms of how she chooses to share her work, for example, um, serializing her first three novels um, or, um, or or finding ways to sell her poetry at her speaking engagements. You mentioned that um, she wasn't necessarily paid for, uh, for many of the speeches that she delivered. And I, I wonder if you could help us to understand, is that like a superpower that Harper has? Really, her, her need to survive and her placement as an African-American woman who is really seeing to her own survival. She doesn't marry, she's 30, very late at that time. She That's married right. at 35 or a bit after 35. And so having to figure this all out, is that a superpower? How is her, how is her work impacted by that? Um, I mean, the, the easy answer is of course, yes, it is a superpower. Um, you know, in, in the sense, in the sense that of course, when she marries, I mean, against tradition. This is not the reality of, of women's lives. Yes. But against tradition, she is the one who brings the resources into their life. And she is the one who loses resources when he dies. Mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, there's no contribution in that way, um, except, you know, a sort of respectability and, you know, a man can own property and a woman can't and, and the things that she speaks about, right, in the movement stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it would be nice for us to say, because I think we like to do this, we like to say, oh, imagine if a Black person like her could have been in the Academy and what she could have written and, and all of this. I, I think we should be careful is that, um, I think we should be careful to think about her genius as one that we all have in a particular way. So I saw superpower in kind of quotes, right? Um, is that can we adapt and meet the opposition, the adversity that we encounter at the same time? And, and 
her genius is being able to do that, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, I, 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 I can't, you know, in the work that I've done to look at her life and all this, I can't imagine having succeeded with the type of adversity, you know, coming from poverty in a particular way. I mean, middle class, in a middle class family, but relatively neglected, having to find her own way, um, using what education she had, being the first black woman hired, first woman hired at Wilberforce to to teach seamstress, I mean, to teach sewing, right? Leaving after a year, trying, basically trying all these different things to try it, to find a way to survive. You you could say it like that, but you know, I think that diminishes her creative work, right? Mm. You know, to say that she just did this to survive. No, I think you could say it like this, talk about an American spirit. Yes. Talk about, let's talk that way. Talk about the fact that she came, she came from very little with almost no reason, with no support. If she had failed at any one moment, she had to find something else. So she fails at a dairy farm, right? Because the bank repossesses the dairy equipment upon the death of her husband, Mm. right? She can't pay the debts because as a woman, she can't, the debt's not hers. So, you know, and she comes back, she, she starts, she's very young children and she goes back on the circuit to make money makes money, comes back to the farm only to find out that the equipment has been stolen by a neighbor? Like, come on, people. And the neighbor, this is, um, you know, but but, but perhaps I'm what I'm talking about this is how it, it's sort of, um, you don't know where it's coming. In, in Harper's life, it's sort of, you don't know where it's coming from. This is a neighbor that, I mean, this is a, this is my new shit, but it's not. This is a neighbor that she, she and her husband at one point had helped. They yes. left some money. Um, yes. Then he goes, he goes so far as to he files this. I don't I don't I know um, this is yeah. not in your I don't think is this in your book? Um, I don't know. No, no, I, I avoided these types. You know, I know I, you I know. have to make all of these decisions, but I know, but, but and it is not, but it is because it's so it's so much a part of her politicization, I suppose. Um, so much a part of what we talk about of her awakening as a feminist. These types of things, just That's what right. you're talking about, right. um, that she recognizes that if I were a man, and, and she says as much in her work, if I were a man, as you know, if I were a man, this would not have happened. That this right. man goes and bears witness against her, calls her an alien, basically, so that he can get access to her property. So, you know, anybody, anybody, anybody but the woman. Um, and, and so this kind of, um, oh, my goodness, I, I'm so sorry. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. No, and I say like this. Let me say like this because I want, I mean, I know this is my job in a way, but I I want to remind everybody that this is this this event that we're talking about. Did she know that she was a black woman who had to make her own way before this? Mm. Did she, at every turn, get? She was told to her face that she could not help in the Underground Railroad because her status from you know as freed from Maryland as free from Maryland was made her vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they're really saying is young woman, we don't need your work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like this, you can contribute in this way. Like how many, how many black women have been told, well, we can help, you can help in this way, but not that way. Mm-hmm. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. And you hear that in that. So all of her life, it's been, she's been told, this is somebody who all her life was told, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, like she, so she had to accommodate, like, how can I get up on stage? How can I, so what, I guess what, the, how can I get my poetry out or give a, get a space for my own creative work? So what I want to emphasize here is that imagine the creative force to drive her not to work as a servant. Remember the help? Mm-hmm. Yes. Not to work that way. But yes. to say, I'm going to do this through poetry. I'm going to do this through writing. Yes. Did she have to serialize her novels? Yes. Because who's going to publish the novel of a black woman? Exactly. Yeah. Like there's no space for that. Um, you know, what I do like, though, is that within the black press, it's it's really important because I think there's something we need. There's some healing we need to do as a black community today. Right. Within the black press. I mean, yes. But within the black press. 
you notice that her work is alongside the work of black men. Mm -hmm. She's included from the very beginning. Yeah. And this is a young black woman. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can say that there are lots of complications. I mean, it's true. There are lots of gender issues, there are sexuality, there's all that stuff for us as a community, right? There's class issues, there's all that stuff. I'm not neglect neglecting any of that, any of that. But it is a caution for us that in the 1850s and 1860s, black men and women published together. And, you know, we can say, oh, it's poetry as opposed to that speech by Douglas. But I'm sorry, like Francis Harper had plenty of speeches. Yes. <laughs> like this, like, let's not. And one of the things that we're not talking about is that she was also what we might consider a war correspondent or a correspondent in a way that her missives from the South as she traveled was very important to the black free community, always free community and newly free community up in places like Philadelphia. Like they read her, you know, her sort of descriptions. This is almost like Hurston, the anthropologist. Yeah. The eyes are watching God, right? And one of the things when you talk about poverty, you know, it's a shame for us. It's, it's, it's embarrassing that we allowed Hurston to die in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is somebody who, she did not die a wealthy woman, but Frances Harper did manage to succeed. Yes. And she is one of the few because we, we should, as we're talking this way, she, we should not neglect the fact that she did well, well enough to donate money to all the causes she cared about. Now, you're talking about a black woman in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s. As a poet, mm -hmm. she made money. So I know a lot of people are poets. You try and make money like that in a completely hostile environment with your audience, you know, black people are poor, right? So she's still making enough money. How many thousands of chapbooks did she say? You know what I mean? Like how much, like she must have sold a lot, right? A lot. So I'm, I'm gonna go back to something you said though about the loss of the dairy farm, because I, I know I go on about stuff. Um, is in that moment with the neighbor, she lends money, right? Like this, in one of her books, she, cause you know, the her books are, it's important for the, readers to find access to the texts and to realize that they are profound in, in ways that speak to the everyday for her and the black community and the larger American community, but also for us today. She has there a moment in which, you know, she talks about, you know, a shopkeeper lending somebody $500, right? And instead of asking for it back, $500 at that time is a huge amount of money, yeah, right? Yeah. Huge amount of money. And instead of asking for it back, right, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the moral is, oh, no, no, that's okay. Uh, you know, this was something, you know, I, I don't want to put them in poverty, right? Um, you know, you can't help but think that this is exactly the description of her own life, right? She's coming back. You know, on the one hand, she has a speech in which she talks about her sort of gender awakening. Yes. But in this text, she also talks about uh, a a similar issue related to that. And that is, so if you donate, if you're generous, you'll get it back in different ways. You don't go ahead and turn around and say, well, now I got to call the bill in. Right. Yeah. Um, and that otherwise it seems like a sort of superfluous moment, but she has a lot. And one of the things I want to say about Iola Leroy in particular is that Iola Leroy is, you know, a, a story of course, the plot and themes and all this, but it is also a p explicit political statement yes. for somebody in 1892. It's an explicit, it's just like, you know, the, the texts on lynching, the things that are coming up at the same time. It is just the same. And so we have neglected the, the political, the attempt, what it means as sort of attempt at using literature to address the different tensions within the community and the society. And, and so it's a very politically sophisticated document. And I want people to understand that as they instead, oh, what kind of text is this? Oh, it's so simple. No, 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 no. Instead, she's got all the different pieces. She's got the famous people, you know, surrogates for, she's got all of this, all the arguments. She's got the salon. She's got all this. She's got Iola Leroy's development. Yes. As a, as a young woman to something else or her future. 
She then ends the book with, you know, a sort of hope that she knows in 1892 will not come to pass. Dr. McKnight, I am so glad that you have pivoted to Iola Leroy. Um, I would love for you to talk a bit more about one of the things that struck me about your reading of the text is the importance you place on the concept of choice, choice that the characters make, self-possession. And, and that's so important, I think, because you just um, you just mentioned that um, Harper, um, truly, that we can assess her life as a success. We in Philadelphia. Oh, by the way, everybody, I have to say this. Dr. McKnight is a graduate of Swarthmore College as well. So there is a local connection um, uh, there, uh, but but we are very proud that that Frances E. W. Harper um, maintained her her personal sovereignty, that she maintained her um, uh, that she cared for and looked after herself, that she kept her home at 1006 Bainbridge Street um, yes. in South Philadelphia, uh, and uh, that she was able to live and die on her own terms, and and ultimately doing so alone, having buried her husband, having buried her daughter. Um, but in your reading, you really emphasize um, the importance of choice around issues of race, around issues of um, of alliance, social and, and, and political alliance, not just for Iola, who has a, a unique kind of choice as a person who phenotypically um, yes. can pass as a, a Caucasian American, but even for other characters, her uncle and other characters, characters in the book. Could you talk a little bit about why that's so important? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because we have we have something called a genre called the passing passing yeah. novel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't read Iola Leroy that that way at all. Instead, what she's trying to do in it, and you you also I, I think we need to be cautious as a very sophisticated black readership. Mm -hmm. We have to be cautious not to read in. Yes, of course, you ask the questions that are re that are resonant in your time. Yeah. But we have to also be like, why are we asking that question of a text when this is one of the first texts, right? Yeah. Mm. Remember that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and this was, you know, a, you know, a novel, not serialized. Like this was, the the full thing came out, right? Um, yeah, I know I've said that clumsily, but but really, what she's doing is she's saying, okay, one of the choices that we have to make as a as a free, formerly enslaved community, with the tensions we have with that. North and South, different types of occupations. She's very explicit. It's a class thing as well. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it is gender all the way through, and there's sexuality stuff in there as well, right? Um, you know, and I, I'm not being glib about it. I'm just trying to get to the, the issue that she's taking these different things and she says, look, how we constitute ourselves. Iola Leroy makes a choice when she leaves slavery and is in the armed encampment. She makes a choice of saying, yes, I could do this. And it is not, it is, um, but I'm not going to, and I'm not going to pass. It's, it's very, it, it, it's, it's not just her saying it on, let's say, after about 40, 50 pages of the book. Um, it has been said before that by others yes. while they were enslaved. So the one of the more, a core message of the book is you write about choice, but it's also about what are the obligations for those of all of us who have experienced, as Du Bois says, living under the veil, mm, yes. right? And, the, and she also makes it about realizing that, that there are some people who don't realize it. And her other texts are definitely about this, where people realize who they are, and through that process, um, in other words, there are certain experiences. Now, these can be shared by other people, right? But there is an obligation that you don't have to choose. Because she does have examples of people who don't who just drift off. Yes. Right? But she's saying that this is, and this is how I'm trying to talk about her sort of political narrative, what she offers us. She says, to make the choice of not supporting the black community as much as we can in the particular ways that meet our personal needs, right? With all the different, because remember, very different characters, very different. She has, you know, the, the, the farm hand and she has the sophisticated. She has the medical doctor. I'm talking about black people, right? In Iola Leroy, she has a whole range of people, right? Um, and she even toys with the idea of the former master or mistress, 
right, and their obligations also. She thinks that the obligations to the black community are definitive of what we mean by America. Mm. And so the choice we make, I, I know I generalized it, but I think that the choice that she offers up is no choice. But, but she also says that, you know, you cannot berate, because she does this with, with different figures in the text, you can't not, not berate those who can't make those choices, who, who can't find themselves, like there's the white doctor who's in love with her. And, and essentially it's like, we, we can't have, we can't sort of close our romantic relationship, the romantic possibilities, because you can't understand the obligation that not just I have, but that you should have. Yes. That you should have. This is not a only a black thing. As long as you say, now, as a black person, I can say, yeah, it's a black thing, you know, like this, right? And I'm fine. But all of a sudden, I'm looking around, and I'm like, wait a second. You know, that's not what Francis Harper is saying. Francis Harper is saying, yes, there are black readers for the text. That's something we have to remember. There are plenty of black, like, you know, remember, she has a history of, of being in the black community talking about this. Right. But there are white readers of the text. And she's saying through a series of relationships that she develops, right, that the choices she actually has like three or four relationships that she describes as white men in particular, but white women also making particularly bad choices, if you want to say it that way. Right? Like this. But then she's but by doing that, there's no question. By doing that, she's also offering up good choices. And in many sacrifice written right after the war, 68-69, in many sacrifice, the the book, I really strongly recommend that that readers, you know, listeners read this. Um, you know, it's of course her first book, right? Like this, um, even though she has long poems, right? Um, but in many sacrifice, she talks about two uh, black women and a black man who don't know they're black who go through the whole sort of journey, you know, Suryurn, where they, they develop themselves in, and in different ways that speak to the idea of femininity, masculinity, gender politics, or, or like all this, different choices. Um, and you see a very a sophistication that we should admire, I think, for a text written like that. Because um, this is before, you know, you could be in a women's studies course <laughs> or an African-American studies course. This is, you know, she is coming up with this, right? Um, as part of a community that existed. So the two discover themselves, discover basically that they're black. They have the same type of sense of obligation. That's a very complex obligation, not as people say now, are you down or not? It's not like that. This is like a life that actually involves many sacrifice. He dies, right? Even though her partner is just as important and lives. And so much of her poetry is about black women's survival and black men's sort of the loss of black men, right? I, you know, that text talks about what happens if the black man survives and the black woman. So okay. does he, does he take on her obligations and wait, not only does he do that, what does that mean? And so I actually feel I'm disappointed in the end of many sacrifice because he doesn't, he doesn't take on what she has done. Instead, he says to honor her, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Right. That, that shows that she's remember, this is a created, created product, right? This shows for me that she's aware of the problem of gender within the black community in terms of different types of obligations that are imposed, different possibilities and the need to push against this. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just went on about it, but it's about choice. It is. And and she comes back to that. She interrogates the, the, the same types of things in Iola Leroy many years later. Right? Yeah, the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, decades later, yeah. she comes back to it. So now remember, she's using her faith in this. Right. She's using her faith to kind of glue the community together. and And I do... I don't, I don't want to emphasize it in a certain type of way because we think of faith in Christianity often and, and church going 
as, I mean, we have a real tension with it. Mm-hmm. We have a real tension with it. Um, I, I do think that, you know, that tension also existed. There are many people, you know, and they're not going to church. There are no churches. They, there's all this, you know, like this, that time too. So we shouldn't think of her as simplistic. Instead, we should see her using the Bible and the idea of a Christian faith as saying, look, here we have a common language or common enough. You don't have to, you don't have to do X, Y, Z. What you have to do is think about the type of choices available. And the reason why I think this is important for her choices were also about living a ter- certain type of righteous life. Yes. Not respectability, but a certain type of righteous life. And one of those things was giving back to the community. Like a life lived for others is a life that is affirming for yourself. Well lived. Yeah. And, and yeah. That Christian ethic, um, not just so much a part of her own life. She's the niece of a, uh, of a, a well-known in his own right, abolitionist educator, founder of a school. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so being uh, Reverend Harper's niece meant that she was going to be, and, and also um, uh, having an uncle who was involved in the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement. He is going to have, she's going to be educated in that particular Christian ethic. But then like David Walker, she also finds a way to interrogate the Christian principles uh, that the country, um, uh, the country ostensibly is supposed to be abiding by, um, right. and utilizes that common language and says, "Here is here is where we should be, and uh, this, this mm-hmm. here is here is where we are in yeah. fact." And it's actually really important that you bring that up. Is that and Mariah Stewart as well, yeah. right? Is that she was actually writing in the tradition. The protest tradition. The protest tradition was written in these these terms. So it says something to us that we've moved. I mean, not not negative or positive. It just says something that we've moved so far from that. Um, I mean, I like the idea of the problem of choice. I, I do think it points to a wound that we have today. We have the colorism wound. We have a a similar. You know, I I don't want to compete with problems but we have a similar problem with the class issue right um and we have a similar problem with gender and harper is trying to solve that she's explicitly in her novels trying to solve this like she's trying to solve she's trying to talk about what's right action right and yes it's confined to the problems of her day but one of the Sowing and reaping is about, um, you know, a newly freed population. What should their moral action be toward one another? Trial and triumph is what's the cost and, and possibility of political equality, right? That's, it's very explicit. Meaning sacrifice is a novel. It's very, but let me say like this. Okay, so, you know, Cornell's a friend of mine. Cornell writes his text, right? Everybody's got issues. Dyson, everybody writes, you know, everybody... You know, Monty Perry, Eddie Glott, everybody. You're like, I'm just like going down a list. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Desmond Ward, et cetera. Are they writing the same type of text? Yes. Okay. You know, they're writing, they're writing about our condition, right? Yeah. And yeah. so we go, oh, Francis Harper, you know, the conditions, black life, 1850s, 1860s, 1870. What do we care about that? And black people are saying that. And I'm like, wow. Because as long as we keep saying that, we're not understanding who we really might actually be. And yet we look at somebody like Frances Harper, and I think mostly because she's just too intimidating. This is, you know, this is who wouldn't, in our day and age, who wouldn't want to be that intellectual within the black community? Harper was reviled, lauded, and approved, and and she stunned the white community. She overwhelmed them, right? She survived physical assault. You know what I mean? Like she, she kind of over, you know, and, and yet there are no awards. There's no academic full professorship chair of something or other. There's nothing like that. Right. Instead, she, if she doesn't produce her poetry, she starves. Right. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think, I think what better person to represent us. Thank you so much, Dr. McKnight. Let me say one thing. Let me say one thing. Don't forget the Philadelphia piece. Decades of living in Philadelphia. Yes. You know, and, and her home was open. 
like, you know, after the Underground Railroad's no longer necessary, in quotes, right, you know, all of a sudden she opens it up, her home to literary geniuses like herself who do not have the funds and all this. Remember, where are they going to stay? They'll stay at Francis Parker's house. It's a huge thing. It's a huge thing for, for Black women and Black men. So thank you very much for this. Certainly. Thank you so much, Dr. McKnight. It has been a real treat. And that does it for my interview with Dr. Utz McKnight. His book, Francis E.W. Harper, A Call to Conscience, is currently available online wherever books are sold. Friend, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this four-episode series on the life and work of the inimitable and inspirational Francis E.W. Harper, part of an eight-episode special season of The Tara Lake Show, and one of a collection of episodes uplifting the voices and impact of extraordinary women who have forged paths in a range of fields. Thank you so much for joining me for The Tara Lake Show. I hope you'll join me next week. Please take a moment to subscribe wherever you hear this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And until next time, stay safe. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please reach out at taralakeshow.com. That's taralakeshow.com. I'm your host, Tara Lake. Thank you so much for listening to The Tara Lake Show.